Well, if you guys have your copy of God's Word with you, go ahead and take them and turn to John chapter 5. John chapter 5. We've been in this chapter for a couple weeks. It begins with uh, an amazing miracle, Jesus' compassion that is set on the man who was paralyzed, the man who couldn't walk for 38 years. And he sets his sovereign compassion on this man. After he'd been in Galilee, he comes to Jerusalem. He's at the pool of Bethesda in verses 1 through 4. He picks this pool. He picks this man. He picks this day. It's the Sabbath day. And because of the miracle that he does, when Jesus does one thing, he's doing a billion things. And because of the miracle that he does on the Sabbath day, the Jewish leaders are angered by him and at him. They begin to persecute him. And they began to say, you shouldn't do these things. They're not lawful to do on the Sabbath. You can't heal on the Sabbath. And instead of buying into that issue, instead of saying, you know what? Yes, I shouldn't heal on the Sabbath. So let me tell you about the Sabbath rule and I can make it all clear to you. He just says, I can do whatever I want on the Sabbath because I made it. I own the Sabbath. So let me tell you that I am God. The Jews knew that. Back in verse 18 of chapter 5, For this reason, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill Jesus because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but now he's also calling God his own father, making himself equal to God. And last week we saw six ways in which Jesus is equal to God. These are all from his lips. Verses 17 through 47 is just one long discourse spoken by Jesus about his deity. And so from Jesus's own lips, he says, I am equal to God in my nature. I'm equal to God in my works. I'm equal to God in my power. I'm equal to God in my own authority. I'm equal to God in my honor, the worship that is due my name. And I'm equal to God in my words and my truth that I speak. I am equal to God. The whole purpose of this section is Jesus is proving his deity clearly on display. He's not only claiming to be Messiah. He's claiming to be God come in the flesh, Emmanuel. So what I want us to do this morning is listen to his words as he continues this discourse. He's going to bring in witnesses to say, it's not just me saying these things. Other people have said these things about me as well to prove his point. And in these verses, as we read them, we're going to take some time to just read them and ask God's blessing on our morning. But in these verses, you will see the witnesses confirming who he is. And you'll see why people choose not to believe him. You will see the witnesses confirming him, and then you'll see the cause, the root cause of unbelief. And I believe that these verses are instructive to our souls this morning because they tell us why we struggle in our own belief. So let's listen to them as Jesus gives the witnesses confirmation and then the root cause of unbelief. Let's start in verse 30, and we'll read through the end of the chapter. John chapter 5, verse 30. I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I do not seek my own will. I seek the will of him who sent me. If I alone testify about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who testifies of me, and I know that the testimony which he gives about me is true. You have sent to John, and he has testified to the truth. But the testimony which I receive is not from man. I say these things so that you may be saved. He was the lamp that was burning and was shining, and you were willing to rejoice for a little while in his light. But the testimony which I have is greater than the testimony of John, for the works which the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I do testify about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me, he has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time, nor seen his form. You do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe him whom he sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me, and you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. I do not receive glory from men, but I know you, that you do not have the love of God in yourselves. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another, and you do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God? 
Do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. The one who accuses you is Moses, in whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me because he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? God, these verses are rich. They are so deep. We could spend a sermon on each witness. We could spend a sermon on every verse. These are so deep. And so I pray as we skim the surface on most of this and dive down deep into two main areas of these verses, that you would be pleased to confirm these truths even in our own hearts today. God, I praise you that the majority here this morning know you, believe in you, and have surrendered to you as Lord and Savior, have not, like the Jews, been unwilling to come, but have been willing to come. God, I pray that they would be encouraged in their willingness, that that's a gift from you, and that they would be encouraged as their faith grows to see the root cause of any unbelief in their hearts. And God, for those in this room that do not know you as Lord and Savior, they probably know facts about you. They probably believe even that those facts are true to some degree. But God, they have not surrendered to you. They don't obey you. They have not repented of sin. God, I pray that this morning would be a morning where faith would be awakened in their hearts. And they would see clearly the Son of God on full display for who he is and bow the knee to him once and for all. May we all do that together. And even as we sang, may we crown him Lord of all. We love him and we pray it in his name. Amen. We're going to split this section up into two main points on our outline. Number one, the confirmation of the witnesses. And number two, the cause of unbelief. I believe you have that in your bulletin. The, co- the confirmation of the witnesses. And number two, the cause of unbelief. And they really go together. The confirmation of the witnesses is really the whole section But the cause of unbelief is seen in verses 39 through 47. So let's go through these testimonies, these witnesses that Jesus calls. In verse 30, Jesus says, I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I'm not seeking my own will. I don't have my own will. I do the will of the Father. Whatever the Father wills, I I will do that. He said this in the garden, not my will, but yours be done. This is the way that Jesus lives his life. Not my will, God's will. So he declares himself to be God, equal to be God, and doing God's works. And it's as if he knows that the next statement that the Jews will make is, yeah, but you just said that about yourself. Nobody else is confirming that. It's very easy for somebody to say something about themselves, but we need witness and testimony from somebody else. Go actually to chapter 8. You will see they actually say this. Chapter 8, verse 13 The Pharisees say, when Jesus says, I am the light of the world, he's again going to make claims that he is God. So verse 13 of chapter 8, the Pharisees say, you are testifying about yourself. Your testimony is not true. You have no witnesses. You can't just speak these things about yourself. People alongside of you need to tell you that. And Jesus is going to agree with that statement to say, I'm not just going to speak this myself. That would be enough for you, but I'm not just going to speak that myself. I'm going to give you other witnesses. Keep your finger in chapter 8. Go back to chapter, six, ch- chapter 5. In verse 31, he says, If I alone testify about myself, my testimony is not true. Jesus is not saying, If I speak by myself and I don't have other witnesses, I'm not true. Now go back to chapter 8 where they say, Your testimony isn't true because you just speak about yourself. Look at what he says in verse 14. Even if I testify about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from. I know where I am going. But you don't know where I come from or where I'm going. So Jesus could just do this by himself. He could just say, this is who I am, take it or leave it. What he does is graciously give us extra witnesses. What he's doing is he's deferring to the Jewish understanding in Deuteronomy 17.9 and Deuteronomy 19.15 that out of the mouth of two or three witnesses, a thing will be confirmed. So he's bringing in those witnesses. Um, You guys understand this. uh, When when we um, went to the bank to sign all the papers for our mortgage, and you just feel like you're signing your life away, um, you have to do that in front of the notary. Um, they're giving you everything that you have to do, and there has to be a witness there. I can't say, oh, I don't need you. I'll take this home. I'll do it. And just trust me on this one. 
You need the witness. And so Jesus is going to say, I have witnesses. And he's going to say, I have one main witness, and it's God the Father. You trust him, you believe him, listen to him. And he gave a threefold testimony. So God the Father gave a threefold testimony. That's what he says in verse 32. There is another who testifies of me. That's God the Father. And I know that the testimony which he, he gives about me is true. The Father has given a testimony, and he's given it in three ways, three parts. Testimony number one from the Father is John the Baptist. Testimony number two from the Father is the miracles that Jesus does. And testimony three from the Father is the Scripture themselves. So we're going to take those three testimonies and see that they confirm what Jesus has already said about himself. Jesus, in a beautiful way like he does time and time again in the Gospels, is entrusting himself to the Father. Let the Father vindicate my claims. Let the Father vindicate. You don't believe me? That's fine. The Father will confirm and vindicate me on the last day. So these threefold witnesses, they, they move in increasing importance. They move in kind of a lesser to the greater. He's going to start with John, then he's going to go to miracles, and then he's going to go to the scriptures themselves. So let's take these one at a time. First, John. John in verse 33. Jesus says, you have sent to John Pharisees, Sadducees, religious leaders, You have sent people to John to hear what his testimony was about me. And what is his testimony? It's that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And he testified, Jesus says, to the truth. You have sent to John. You know that John is a prophet. You know that. You remember in Mark uh, chapter 11, it's Tuesday of the Passion Week. And the Pharisees, Jesus has just cleansed the temple on Monday, and the Pharisees ask him on Tuesday, hey, by what authority are you doing all these things? Who gave you the authority to cleanse the temple? And Jesus says, I'll answer that if you answer my question first. Um, Whose authority uh, did John come in? In what authority, with what power did John come? Did men just hype him up and give him authority even though he wasn't truly a prophet? Or was he sent by God? The Pharisees huddle up. They go, well, we've been caught again. Don't know how to answer. And they say, if we were to answer, John is from man, he was just hyped up by man, he wasn't really a prophet, then the people, the crowds will get mad at us because they know he was a prophet. He is a man sent by God. But if we in turn say he's a man sent by God, then Jesus is going to say, well, why didn't you believe his testimony about me if he's truly a prophet? Jesus is saying that all here. He's saying, John has testified clearly about who I am. John's testified to the truth. Verse 34, but the testimony which I receive is not from man. You guys are saying that he's from man. You guys are going to say, well, he's from man, and that's just a different testimony. It's not. God's giving the testimony through John. It's a testimony from the Father, and I'm saying these things so that you may be saved. Verse 35, John was the lamp that was burning and was shining, and you were willing to rejoice for a little while in his light, and then you left. He was the forerunner, and you received him as a prophet, a man sent by God. And then when you didn't like his testimony that Jesus is the Son of God, you were unwilling to stay in the light. He's just a lamp. The purpose of the lamp is to show the light. The lamp isn't the light. The light is the light. John is a prophet to show the light forth as a mirror to what the light is. John is clearly a testimony to Jesus' deity. We know this from Luke 1. We saw this last year when we went through uh, the, the kind of ghosts of Christmas past, present, and future. We did that last year. We looked at Old Testament prophecy. We looked at New Testament, the actual present, Christmas present when Jesus was born. We looked to Christmas future in Revelation. We saw John in Luke 1. His birth is miraculous. It was prophesied by an angel. He was... Um, given to a woman who was barren. Elizabeth had not had kids and couldn't have kids. And she was advanced in years, so she has two strikes against her. And yet she has a child. The child leaps inside of her womb when the child understands that Mary is bearing the Messiah. And um, Elizabeth says he is filled with the Holy Spirit even now to accomplish the works that God has given him to do. John the Baptist testified as a witness that Jesus is the Son of God, the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. That would have been enough. But, secondly, the miracles, verse 36, 
just a step above John, an even greater testimony. Verse 36, the testimony which I have is greater than the testimony of John. So John was sufficient enough, and you sort of believed him and stayed with him for a while, and then you stopped. We have to ask the question why, and we're going to answer that question at the end of the sermon. But the works that the Father has given to me, again, it's the Father's testimony through the works, it's the Father's testimony through John, the works that the Father has given for me to accomplish, the very works that I do testify about me that the Father has sent me. His miracles, Jesus' miracles, the primary reason Jesus performed miracles was to validate the claims that he was making to be the Son of God. We've talked about this before. If I were to come to you and say, I had a dream last night. God spoke to me, and he told me that you all should give me $100 today. You all would say, that's really sweet. I highly doubt it. And where's the evidence? Where's the proof? But if I were to say, God spoke to me, he gave me a dream, he said, 100 bucks from each of you. And here's a dead person, let me raise him from the dead, and now will that validate the claims? You probably still won't give me the 100 bucks because you're very smart people. But you'd probably at least say, we've got to listen to him. We've got to pay attention because people don't just raise people from the dead. Jesus did miracles to validate the incredible statements that he was making. I am the Messiah, the Son of God, come in the flesh. I am God, very God, and I can prove it to you by what I do. Turn to John chapter 10. I'm going to take you on a little bit of a journey through the remainder of this gospel, just five verses here. These works, these miracles were proof that Jesus was who he claimed to be. Nicodemus knew that. Remember John chapter 3, Nicodemus said, we know that you are a prophet sent by God because no one can do the miracles that you are doing unless God was with him. And that statement, that sentiment is said throughout the rest of this book. John chapter 10, verse 25. Jesus answered them and said, I told you and you don't believe the works that I do in my father's name. These testify of me. You're not believing me. I'm doing works to testify. I am God. But you're not believing. Verse 37. If I do not do the works of my father, do not believe me. But if I do them, though you do not believe me, believe the works so that you may know and understand that the father is in me and I am the father. The works are a testimony to who I am. Chapter 11, verse 47. This is after Lazarus has been raised. The chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, what are we doing? What are we going to do with this guy? Because he's performing many signs. And if we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. The signs point to irrefutable evidence that he is who he claims to be. Chapter 14, verse 11. Chapter 14, verse 11. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works in themselves. Believe my, believe my words. And if you don't want to believe my words, then just believe the signs because they point to the fact that the words are true. One last one. John chapter 15, verse 24. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would not have sinned. But now they have both seen and hated me and my father as well, which is terrible because he did all the works and they have rejected him. It was clear evidence that he is who he claims to be, and yet they have rejected him. So these works are powerful and important. And so Jesus says back in John chapter 5, verse 36, These works testify about me that the Father has sent me. The miracles are clear evidence. So we have the testimony of the Father through John, number two, through the miracles that Jesus did, and number three, through the scriptures themselves. Verse 37 And the Father who sent me, he has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. And you don't have his word abiding in you because you do not believe him whom he sent. The Father has testified. Verse 37, he has testified. He sent and he has testified of me. That word testified Uh, In the Greek, the Greek has a bunch of different tenses for verbs that we don't have. And this tense is something called the perfect tense. And so it means that it happened in the past, but it has ongoing effects until now. 
and into the future. So Jesus is saying, God the Father testified about me long ago, and its effects have remained until now and will remain on into the future. Why? Because the testimony is of the scriptures. The Father gave testimony through the scriptures who Jesus would be, who the Messiah would be, that he would be the Son of God. You had that testimony a long time ago, but you haven't believed it then, you haven't believed it now, and you aren't going to believe it in the future. You do not have his word abiding in you because you do not believe him whom he sent. Jesus turns his defense here. There's a change here. He's been defending his claims to be God, and he turns it really to indictments. He gives six different indictments. They start in verse 38. You do not have his word abiding in you. That's indictment number one. You don't have his word abiding in you. Indictment number two is in verse 40. You are unwilling to come to me. You don't want to come to me. Indictment number three is in verses 41 and 42. You do not have the love of God in you. You don't have the love of God in you. You don't love God. Indictment number four is in verse 43. You don't receive me. You do not receive me. Indictment number five in verse 44. You don't seek the glory that comes from God. And the last indictment, indictment number six, is in verses 45 through 47. You do not believe Moses' writing. So his defense turns into these indictments, and we'll take them as they come under the banner of the scriptures being all the testimony that we need. Again, from the lesser to the greater. John was great, and he was sufficient. The miracles are even better, and they're even more sufficient. And now here come the miracles. Here come the scriptures. You don't need anything other than the scriptures. But he says, you don't have the word abiding in you. Verse 39, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is these that testify about me. That word search, you investigate, you track down. Sometimes it's used in extra biblical literature for stalking a prey. The Jews were serious about their scriptures. They knew them. They memorized them. Even the way that Jesus says, you don't have the word abiding in you is an indictment as to how they did relate to the word. You guys probably know, even in Jerusalem to this day, you can see very orthodox Jews, very, very devoted Jews wearing phylacteries. They wear these straps with boxes tied to them. And inside of the boxes, they have a scroll with Deuteronomy 6 on it, the Shema. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And after that, in Deuteronomy 6, if we had time, we could go to it. Just write it down. You can read it. It says, bind these on your hands, bind these on your forehead. The Jews take that very literally. All God's saying is whatever your hands do need to be done under the authority of the scriptures. Everything that you do needs to be done under the banner of love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Bind them on your hands. Just do everything that you do with your hands, every work, every action for the love of God. Bind them on your mind. Bind them on your, on your forehead. Bind them in your mind. Everything that you think, everything that you say, everything that you process, do it under that grid. But the Jews would literally do that. They would bind that scroll in a box on their wrists, on their hands, and on their foreheads. And even to this day, you can see that. So Jesus says, you have it on you, but you don't have it in you. It's not abiding in you. It's abiding on you, but it's never indwelt you. It's not because they didn't honor the scriptures. This is where in my sermon prep, I get to a place where it is so... Sometimes you have to work a little bit to see the application. This was so obvious. I praise God that we are a Bible-believing church and we are serious about the Scriptures. I praise the Lord. But with that comes a potential weakness, a potential blind spot. And it's the exact same blind spot that the Pharisees had. They loved the scriptures. They honored the scriptures so much so that when they were copying the scriptures down, they would copy from one manuscript to the next. They would take one letter. They would copy it with one pen. They would throw the pen away. They would walk away. They would say a prayer. They'd come back. They'd take a new pen, dip it in the ink, and write the next letter. For every single word in the Old Testament, 
That's how serious they were about their Bible. That's, by the way, a beautiful thing for us because the transmission of the Old Testament to what we have today is so sure because they were so meticulous about it. And they were so meticulous about it because they were so careful to honor this book. They had respect for their Bibles. But the respect went in a different direction than it should have gone. One of the rabbis back then, a guy named Rabbi Hillel, said, Whoso hath gained a good name has gained it for himself. Whoso hath gained the words of the Torah, whoever's gained the words of the Torah, of the law, has gained for himself life in the world to come. So if you gain these words, if you understand these words, you have eternal life. That's exactly what he says. Verse 39, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. If I could just put the in them, he's talking about the scriptures, but he's talking about in searching them, you have eternal life. If we study the Bible, we will have eternal life. This would be like standing at the top of Mount Everest. You get to the top and you're looking, you are at the top of the world and you're looking around at all the beauty, the magnificence, the splendor, the glory, in awe, in wonder at what you're seeing. And somebody else comes up climbing the mountain and says, wow, look at this snow. And at your feet picks up a snowball and says, I want to keep this. And you're saying, look at everything else. Look at everything else around you. And they say, oh, I just want to terminate on this little thing. Uh, it's like going to uh, Sears Tower in, in Chicago and looking through at the, at the highest level, looking through a window at the beauty of the city and having somebody next to you say, Look at how amazing this glass is. Look at this beautiful piece of glass. And you're saying, just look through it. Look through it. The Bible is a window to look through. Don't terminate on the Bible itself. It's a means to an end. But for the Pharisees and the Sadducees, it was an end in and of itself. The Bible is a wonderful window, but we must look through that window to see the beautiful realities of Jesus. I am committed, as you are, to... The need to study the Bible daily, to dive into it, to be serious with it. But it must never be done just for studying's sake. We talk about this a lot, just checking it off the list. They thought, the Jewish leaders thought, that in just checking this off their list, they would have eternal life. They had zeal. They had greater zeal than we have. But their zeal alone is insufficient for attaining eternal life. And so I just plead with us, Christ Bible Church, be men and women who are serious about the word, honor the word, revere the word, yes. But never think that just having honor for the word enables you to know Jesus. You need to to wrestle with this book and let it be a window to point you to Jesus, to see him clearly and to savor him more dearly. He says, you search the scriptures You think you have eternal life in them, in the searching of them, but you're missing the whole point. They testify of me. But verse 40, you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. They testify about me. You even know that, but you're unwilling to come to me so that you would have life. Notice that Jesus says, Your unbelief is not due to a lack of evidence or testimony. Anyone's unbelief in this life is never due to a lack of evidence or testimony. We have the evidence we need and it's sufficient. Unbelief is never due to God forcing you to go to hell. Nobody in hell is saying, I really didn't want to be here. I wanted to be in heaven, but God planned it that I would have to be here. That's not biblical. Unbelief is never due to an insufficiency in Jesus' sacrifice. His sacrifice is sufficient for all, John 3.16. Unbelief, verse 40, is clearly always due to an unwillingness to go to Jesus. You don't come to me. You're unwilling. You don't want to. So, all responsibility of the sinner's unbelief falls on them Judgment is not a matter of God being unwilling to receive them. They're not judged because God's unwilling to receive them. God desires all to come to repentance. Salvation is all of God. It's not of us. 
judgment is all of us. That's not God forcing or God ordaining or God pushing us to that direction. How that all works out, you probably have questions running around in your mind. Join the human race. There's a tension there. But Deuteronomy 29, 29 says very clearly that what has been revealed to us is ours to know, and we can know those things. There's mysterious things that belong only to God, and there's a tension in that. But this verse is abundantly clear. You don't believe because you're unwilling to come to me. Why are they unwilling to come to Jesus? Jesus is going to say three different ways in which they're unwilling. First, he says in verse 41, I don't receive glory from you. I don't receive glory from you. They're unwilling to glorify Jesus. And then in verse 42, he's going to say, you don't have the love of God in yourselves. They're unwilling to love God. And then the remainder of the section, they're unwilling to believe the scriptures. They're unwilling to glorify Jesus. They're unwilling to love God, and they're unwilling to believe the scriptures. Jesus says, verse 41, I do not receive glory from men. I'm not receiving glory from you. He should receive glory. But, drop down to verse 44, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and you don't seek the glory that is from the one and only God? You don't seek glory from me. You don't receive, you don't give me glory the way that I should receive glory. We saw this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I would just encourage you to write it down. In Family Bible Hour, we saw 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4 and 6. Jesus is the image of God. Uh, the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ is he is worthy of all of our praise, all of our affections. He is God, very God. And yet verse 41 says that he's not receiving any glory from men, even though he should. In verse 42, right off the bat, tells us why he should. I know you. I'm omniscient in my understanding of you, and yet you still don't give me glory. And you don't have the love of God in yourselves. That is the very verse that they had tied to their bodies. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And yet they didn't love him. The mere externals were doing nothing in their hearts. They didn't love God. So the question is, what did they love? They loved their own opinions about God's word. They loved hearing themselves talk. They loved debating about theological issues. We don't need to let him point us to Jesus and to love Jesus. We don't need to love God. Let's just love fighting about his word. Let's just love arguing and debating about his word. They loved their own opinions. They loved talking about their own opinions. I believe this about God. I believe this about God. But it never pushed them to wonder and to awe. One commentator says, Whatever light man finds, they doubt it. They love not light, but talk about it. They find the light and they doubt it because they don't love the light. They just love talking about it. Their self-glorification, they don't love Jesus, they don't glorify him, they glorify themselves. Their self-glorification kept them from the truth. Kept them from the truth. Jesus says, you don't love God, you don't have the love of God in yourselves. Verse 43, I have come in my Father's name and you don't receive me. You don't receive me. I came with the testimony of the Father in his name, you don't receive me. But if another comes in his own name, you receive him. This actually happened even before Jesus was born. Other messiahs, false messiahs would be raised up and say, I'm the messiah. And people would say, why do you think that you're the messiah? Because I am. And people would believe them, would follow them. They revolted against Rome several times before Jesus was even born. And they followed people that had no testimony whatsoever, but they believed them just because they wanted to believe them. Mark 13, verse 6 says this. Many will come, Jesus says, many will come in my name, saying that I am he and will mislead many. They receive them, but you're not receiving me. But, verse 44, how can you believe me? How can you receive me? When you receive glory from one another and you do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God. How can you believe? That word believe, again, tenses in Greek, different tenses that they have in the Greek language. It literally means, how can you even begin to start putting your faith in me? You're not believing me. And how can you even begin to place your faith in me when you're receiving glory from one another and you don't seek 
the glory that is from the one and only God. This is a very, very pregnant verse, and we're going to come back to it because I believe this is the, the bottom, the foundational root cause of unbelief. And I think it's very serious, and I think all of us struggle with it. But if you turn to John chapter 12, just for now, we'll come back to this, but turn to John chapter 12, verse 37. It says this, Though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason they could not believe. For Isaiah said again, He has blinded their eyes and has hardened, he hardened their hearts so that they would not see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted, and I healed them. These things Isaiah said because he saw his glory. Isaiah saw the glory and he spoke of him. Nevertheless, many even of the rulers believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue because they loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. So why did they not believe? Two reasons. They didn't see the glory of God because they loved the glory of men more than the glory of God. That's, that's the cause of unbelief. And that's what Jesus says in verse 44, back in John 5. How can you even begin to believe when you receive glory from one another and you don't seek the glory that is from God? You can't believe in Jesus if you love the praise of man more than you love the glory of God. Verses 45 through 47. Again, we'll come back to verse 44, but verses 45 through 47. Let's finish out this section. He says, Do not think that I will accuse you before the Father, the one who accuses you, is Moses. Now, I think when he says that name, there would have been a couple in the audience. They revere Moses. They love Moses. And he says, he's the one who's going to accuse you. I don't need to do anything. Why? You've set your hope in him, but if you had truly believed him, you don't. But if you had believed him, you would believe me because you wrote about me. But if you don't believe his writings, how, you, how will you believe my words? If you do not believe the scriptures, you will not believe in Jesus. This is another reason why there are many times where I have people that say there are so many secondary issues to the gospel. We have issues like uh, six-day creation. We have, we have so many secondary issues. Um, why are you guys so uh, detail-oriented with those issues? Why do those matter so much to you? Why do you... Why do you look at those and teach on those and care about those? Why don't you just care about the gospel and nothing else? This is the verse I would turn to. Because if you don't believe those other things, you can't believe these. If you, don't, if you say all of, those, all of those passages in the Old Testament, I don't take those at all as truth. I just believe Jesus in the New Testament. Jesus would say, if you don't believe Moses, you can't believe me. And if you believe me, you would believe Moses. That's why we teach on every aspect of the Bible. That's why we... We do get detailed uh, in those different aspects of the Old Testament and in different aspects of doctrine and theology because we want to believe the whole Bible. Remember we said last week, if you don't believe Jesus' claims, you've just detonated a bomb that will destroy your whole Bible. Because of this verse, you can say it the other way. If you don't believe Moses' claims, you've detonated a whole bomb that will destroy everything that Jesus said. You can just write down Luke chapter 16, verses 29 through 31. You know the passage. Uh, it's the story of the rich man and Lazarus. It's probably coming into your mind even as we uh, were reading these verses. Um, the rich man dies, goes to hell. Lazarus dies, goes to heaven. The rich man says, um, please offer me some relief. Just let him dip his finger into water and cool my tongue. Um, Abraham says, no, the expanse is too large. And he says, well, then can you send him to go back? The rich man says, can you send him to go back and tell my family? They didn't believe any of this was real, and I don't want them to experience this. Go, let him go back and tell my family. And Abraham says, no. If he goes back as a resurrected man from the dead, they're not going to believe him. Why? There's another gar clause there. Because they have not believed Moses and the scriptures. If they don't believe a book, they won't believe a man being raised from the dead. That's what Jesus is saying here. The scriptures were clear and, and sufficient to demonstrate that Jesus is the Son of God. 
And remember, the scriptures for Jesus is just the Old Testament. So what about him is in the Old Testament? Just a little bit of a tour through what about him is in the Old Testament. I think we'll expand this in a couple weeks. You guys know there's details about his birth. The virgin will conceive, bear a child. It's in Isaiah. His birthplace in Bethlehem is in Micah. All kinds of details about his crucifixions in uh, Psalm 22, uh, also Isaiah 53. Um, There's prophecy of his betrayer being a a familiar friend. Psalm 16 points to his resurrection. There's so many different places. Um, But the Old Testament as a whole, when you take the Old Testament as a whole, did the New Testament writers love it? Did they go back to it or did they say, well, what we had in the Old Testament was kind of weird and kind of clouded. We didn't understand it, but now we know that it wasn't true, it wasn't real, and now we have the full New Testament, the full New Gospel. No, they went back time and time again and said the Old Testament, it prophesied this, it said this. Jesus himself refers to the Old Testament. uh, It refers to 20 people in the Old Testament and quotes from 19 Old Testament books. Um, Stephen, in Acts chapter 7, makes over 50 references to the Old Testament in one sermon. Uh, when the apostles preach, they preach from the Old Testament. Acts chapter 2, Acts 3, 4, 7, 8, 10, 13, um, 18, 26, 28. Every time they're preaching, they're quoting the Old Testament. It's their Bible, and they're preaching Jesus from the Old Testament. They're preaching Jesus as the Son of God from the Old Testament. They preach the gospel from the Old Testament. When they wrote the New Testament, there are 312 Old Testament passages quoted specifically in the New Testament. So 312 Old Testament passages quoted in the New Testament. There are about 530 references to the Old Testament in the New Testament alone. There are 50 Old Testament references in Romans alone. And so Jesus said, you had everything you needed in the Old Testament to see me as the Son of God. If you do not believe Moses' writings... How, you will, how will you believe my words? So the confirmation of the witnesses is clear. Jesus says, I am the Son of God. And he says, out of the mouth of two or three witnesses, everything will be confirmed, so let me bring in another witness. And this is the trump card. God himself, the Father, is going to speak. And he's going to give a threefold testimony. John the Baptist, the miracles that Jesus does, and the scriptures themselves. If you believe those things, then you'll believe my claims. If you don't believe those things, you will not believe my claims. That's the the confirmation of the witnesses. I want to end by looking at the second point in our outline, the cause of unbelief. Remember, six indictments of their unbelief. They don't abide in his, his word. His word's not abiding in them. They don't want to come to Jesus. They don't have the love of God in them. They don't receive Jesus. They don't seek the glory that comes from God. They don't believe Moses' writings. Why? Why don't they believe these things? Now, remember, let's fit this section into the whole of John. You have it on the banners here. Why is John writing his gospel? He's writing so that we would believe that Jesus is the Son of God. So I believe that this section of Scripture is going to be preaching at our hearts as to why we fail to live out the theme of this book, to believe in Jesus as the Son of God. Why do we struggle with unbelief? What's the problem with these hearers? Is it mainly that they're Jewish? Is it mainly an ethnic issue? I don't think it is. What is it? There's one answer that Jesus gives explicitly, and it's verse 44. They don't want to come to Jesus, and they don't want to believe him because they receive glory from one another, and they don't seek the glory that is from the one and only God. The bottom answer is this. They loved something. They loved the glory that they got from each other. Uh, I'm a I'm a Pharisee. I know the law. I speak on the law and other people praise me for my understanding of the law. That's all I need. I don't need God's love. I don't need to glorify God. I love the praise of man. And Jesus comes and he says, what you guys are saying is dead wrong. You need to change it. You need to repent. You need to turn to me. And as they look at that, they say, we know you are who you claim to be, but we love the praise of man. So we're not going to follow you. At the bottom of their unbelief is this. What we want has massive control on what we believe. What we want has a massive control on what we believe. If you want something badly enough, and believing the truth will take away that thing that you want badly enough. 
then you will preach to yourself that that truth is actually error so that you can hang on to what you want. And you'll stay enslaved to your wants. You will die in your wants. That is, as one pastor says, you can't believe. Why? Because the love, you love the glory of man, not the glory of God. You don't want Jesus because you want human praise. You don't want Jesus because you want to be the center. You don't want Jesus because you want to be in control. You want to be exalted. You want to be made much of. You love being somebody. Pick whichever one of those fits best for you. They all fit me apart from sovereign grace. But Jesus is saying this is the root cause of unbelief. They want what they want and they're not willing to surrender their wants and their glory that they're receiving from mankind to give glory and honor to Jesus. This is the antithesis of Jesus, of who he is. All the way back in verse 30, I don't seek my own will, I seek the will of him who sent me. Not my will, but yours be done. Unbelief at its root is not your will, but mine be done. Faith is the exact opposite. Faith is going to give all glory to God. Faith expects no glory to come to yourself. Romans chapter 4, verse 20 is a great example of this. Abraham Um, It says this, Abraham, with respect to the promise of God, he didn't waver in unbelief, but he grew strong in faith, giving glory to God. So faith gives glory to God. It's impossible to have true faith while having no desire to glorify God. Faith comes, a a person who has faith comes to Jesus destitute, doesn't say, I want praise from man, says, I don't have anything that would bring me praise from man. I want Jesus and to glorify him. Faith is drinking living water for the satisfaction of your soul. John chapter 4. If you still need the praise of man, you can't and you won't drink from the fountain because you'll be drinking and being satisfied by man's praises. You have two options. Do I go to the fountain of man's praises and be satisfied by them? Or do I say, that's not enough. I need to go to God and be satisfied in him. If you are, Drinking deeply from the fountain of living water, you won't need to be approved by anyone because you're satisfied by the living water. Who cares what people think? Are you living to please God and to glorify him rather than living to please man? By the way, if you do like the idea of being glorified, you will be one day. You will be glorified. And even in your glorified state as a believer, you're going to say, I don't deserve any of this. And the only reason why I'm here in heaven and glorified is because of Jesus's glory. We never get the glory. So my question to you is, where in your life do you still love the praise of man? Maybe you're like the Pharisees. Maybe you love the praise of man for how much knowledge you have over Scripture. And you love people saying, wow, they know a lot about the Scriptures. It's not a bad thing to know a lot about the Scriptures. You should. But if you study the scriptures just to receive praise from man that you know the scriptures well, you're no different than the Pharisees. It could be any area in your life where you say, you know what, I love the praise of man and I'll go through Christian motions just to receive praise and glory from man and not give God the glory. I want to end here with the flip side of this. This is just a harsh indictment Don't be like this. So the question is, what should we be like? This week alone, I've had six different people come to me asking me how they can know without a shadow of a doubt that they're saved. I don't know if you've been there. I've been there. My wife's been there. Pretty much everybody I know has been there, struggling with assurance, struggling with doubts. So I want to take this passage and flip it around, flip it over. And not use the indictments against us, but now use them for us. And I actually was able to use this with four of the people that I spoke with because I was studying through this and I realized this is it. These are helpful encouragements for assurance. And it's just a reverse of everything that Jesus is indicting these people for. He says, you don't desire to glorify me, verse 41. You don't desire to love God, verse 42. And you don't believe the scriptures, the rest of the passage. So my question to you, if you struggle with assurance or doubt, or you know someone who does, is threefold. Do you desire to honor Jesus above all things? Do you love God and desire to love him more? And do you believe the scriptures? 
If you say, yes, I do, and most people struggling with assurance will say it this way, I do, but I don't do those things enough. I would say join humanity. Join every believer. That's why Jesus came, because he loves God enough. He, he satisfied the requirement that you and I need to have to love God with all our heart, heart, soul, mind, and strength that we could never do every second of every day. Jesus did that perfectly, and then he gives that record to us so that the Father looks at us as if we love him every second of every day perfectly. In our sanctification, we wrestle, we fight, we seek to love God more. But my question is, if that desire is there, if that love for God is there and you're sick and tired of the fact that you don't have enough love for God, if you believe the scriptures and you search the scriptures and your faith has come by hearing and hearing by the word of God, then I would say you are willing, verse 40, you are willing to come to Jesus. And the only reason that you're willing to come to Jesus, even as we saw this morning in Family Bible Hour, is that God has breathed life into your soul. It's an evidence of grace. It's an evidence of grace. How does God make us willing? It's the new birth, and it's faith coming by hearing. So I would say this. If you are struggling with assurance, I would say two things. Since you know that God makes you willing through the new birth, and faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, I would pray, God, continue to grant me faith continue to grant. It's a gift. Faith is a gift of God. Continue to grant me faith. And then go to where faith is born. The scriptures. Read, study as a means to the end of loving Jesus. Let this be your window. Jesus says, I am God. Here are the confirmation that you can see, the confirmation of the witnesses to testify that I am truly the Son of God. I am God, very God. And the root cause of your unbelief is because you love what you love more than you ever could love me. So, I believe we would do well to end by preaching to our souls, all glory should go to Jesus. No glory should come to us. And we should refute that root cause of unbelief, even in our souls, right now at this moment, to say, God, you deserve all glory, and none of it should go to us. And for the parts in our hearts where we say, we just love the approval of man. We are all man pleasers at some point in our lives, at some point in our hearts. Let's just for four minutes as we sing, say, God, you should receive it all. And forgive me for the times when I seek the approval of man. God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you yet again for another time when we see ourselves so clearly in this passage. You are speaking to Jewish religious leaders that lived over 2,000 years ago, that we don't know much of their customs or their religion. And yet we do the exact same things. We experience the exact same sin. We struggle with the exact same heart of unbelief. So God, we defiantly fight against our sin now and say all glory belongs to you. You are holy. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. And may all honor, all strength, all wisdom, all power, all glory be yours and yours alone forever and ever. Amen.